Hello and welcome. The name of this podcast series is Taboo Truths and Tales. This podcast is produced in partnership with USTaboo.com. Specials are right now available there exclusively for you because you are listening to this podcast. Visit USTaboo.com. Go there to discover all kinds of very special stuff posted there just for you. Taboo Truths and Tales is hosted by Madeira D'Souza. That's me. Some of you may know me by my nickname as Woody. Whatever you want to call me, I welcome you here to this podcast. Hello, I'm your narrator, Sam Glass from BlackBearVoice.com in Las Vegas. In this episode, Fear Not the Reaper, you will hear Woody, the creator and host of this podcast series, and a candid conversation with an employee who works within the Las Vegas death industry. And now here we go with this episode, Fear Not the Reaper. My guest today is Megan Sweeney in Las Vegas. I am in Las Vegas. She is in Las Vegas. Megan. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? Not too bad at all. We're recording this in August. I happen to have been at a place last night where you were also, and we talked about this, you used a, a phrase, death education, to talk about a recent experience you had in Las Vegas conducting a class. I was fascinated by that. What in the world is death education? And why would someone <laughs> why why would someone bring you in to teach a class? Um that death class that I teach, it's very informal. I will just put that out there. There's nothing scholastic truly about it. Um, but what it is, it's people coming and asking me questions and I answer them. Those questions can range anywhere from when, you know, when my mom died, we did this, what does that mean? So just some general questions about the death process to I would like to be in this industry, how do I get in this industry? A couple of the classes that I taught were on specific topics. So there was one where I talked about the history of death all the way back from the Egyptians beginning embalming to how the Victorian people did it. So Megan, let me give the name of this place that you gave the classes at, Cemetery Pulp in Las Vegas. Those of you listening, it's the word cemetery followed by P-U-L-P. Cemetery Pulp, they are on Facebook, Instagram, and they have a website, cemeterypulp.com. I wanted to explain that why you wouldn't just be like out on Las Vegas Boulevard giving classes. <laughs> on, I'm sure that would be just as fun. <laughs> that would be just that. that I, I think that would be more fun, probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you would be arrested in a, maybe in 10 minutes time. Very yeah. Yes. So. Um, all right. So now that we got death education and the class question I had about why you would teach a class. I really would like to find out, like, you know, we all, when we're kids, people like grownups come to us and say, have, hey, have you thought about what you want to be when you grow up? What can you share with us today about how in the world you came to choose the line of work that you ended up choosing as an adult? Well, I would love to say I was a person that wanted to be a princess when I was little. <laughs> From the start, I've been weird. Uh, if you would have walked up to me when I was eight years old and asked me that question, I would have looked you in the face and said, I want to be a homicide detective. Wow. 
I was obsessed with that. Uh, for a while, I even tried to pursue law enforcement. It is not for me. And I did some soul searching and realized what I was really intrigued by was the death and the homicide part of being a detective. And yeah, once I realized that, uh, it was just kind of a quick spiral. But I was the kid that was always intrigued by death and dead bodies and that whole process of it. So from the beginning, um, I think what really solidified it for me was uh, I had a friend very close to me that had ended her own life. And when I went to her funeral service, it, it went truly horrible. It, it, was, it was not a good experience. And that kind of flipped a switch in my head of, I want to make sure no one else encounters this. Um, and it kind of led me down the path that I'm at now. I would not have, you know, if I were writing this as a fiction, I, I would imagine, um, you know, like the Adams family and those characters that we've come to love from Adam's family, but that has nothing at all to do. You never, uh, you know, you didn't say, well, you used to dress uh, in black or goth clothing or anything. I imagine that had nothing to do with your your personal life, dressing up, I mean. No, and for most of my childhood, actually, I was terrified of all things scary. I cried in Blockbuster at the scary movie titles. I could not go into a Halloween store. I was actually terrified by most of it, but still intrigued by death. Of course, that changed with age, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we know each other in real life. It's not um, that I picked you out of a lineup or something. Um, but you once said to me, you used this particular phrase, and it really stuck with me. You said um, it was referring to the people in the funeral industry. You said, we speak for the deceased. Can you talk about that? Because that made an impression upon me. And, you know, you've kind of gotten to this. You started this when you mentioned a friend of yours who took their own life and you became aware of the shortcomings, I guess, at, at the ceremony. So how when you say we speak for the deceased, or you might even say in your own you know, personal pronoun, I speak for the deceased. What does that mean? What does that mean to you? I think this goes really well, unfortunately, with younger deaths. When there's a lot more mystery and when the death itself is unexpected, I think that's where that phrase would come more in handy with because it gets to a point where the only people that are there at the same level, so to speak, as the decedent would be the funeral team. We're on their side, making sure that everything is prepared and ready, at least from a funeral home standpoint. Um, I encountered this phrase more when I worked for the coroner's office here, um, because that was more of uncovering what happened to these people that died tragically. There were often times that young people would pass due to an accident or they would be found somewhere and it was our job at the coroner's office to find out what happened and to speak and to tell their story of how they came into our care and what happened to them to die so tragically. You're, when you say young, I'm thinking people that are around your age who are not yet even 30. Is that, would that be accurate? I think, at least what I see every day, I think a young death is anything under 80 years old. Megan, why, yeah. do, you, why, why do you say that? Because that is such... That really defines things. I'm thinking, you know, like a celebrity's 
teenage kid or something, you know. But yeah. up to the yeah. age of eighty, you say? Wow. Well, okay, maybe maybe in in the seventies range, but. I mean, there are days where I come into work and there's a file on my desk of somebody that came into our care and they're 53 years old. And everybody, I cannot tell you one person that's with me in the office that sees that and thinks too young. So that's what I mean by a younger death. I I think a good decade to pass away and is in your 90s. You've seen it all. You've done it all. (laughs) But I think I sometimes I still see like like uh, today there was a 38 year old that passed away and that is too young that is way too young as as people we don't normally want to even think about death and least of all we don't want to plan for it our own death or someone else's so it would make sense that when people arrive at that day in the funeral you know the location where the ceremony is being held they're completely blindsided because they didn't think about it is that does that figure into just not just but not planning is that a significant problem or is it that grief just takes over no matter what kind of planning you may have done? Yes. Grief does not care how much thought you put into this time. Um, a lot of people have told me, you know, I, I, the rock of the family, you know, they were on hospice. We knew this was coming. I didn't think I'd react like this, but the truth is you never know how you're going to react until that time comes. I've spoken with people who seemed completely fine and unfazed. And there was one family I spoke to today that asked for the weekend before they even heard heard my name again. <laughs> they, they needed days before they could even fathom thinking about taking those next steps with me. Yeah. And when, and, you, when you say those, those next steps, you mean they come in from uh, the very recent experience of having someone pass and then they have to arrange for what is it they are, are arranging for? I understand, you know, I've heard of cremation um, and then the burial, picking a place to be buried or a method and so forth. Is that what kinds of things do you talk about when they come in, when people come in? Something as simple as starting the death certificate with your funeral director to if it's just going to be a cremation, you know, we'll pick out an urn. Uh, if it's going to be full funeral services, then we will go through everything of picking a casket, discussing clothing and makeup, um, discussing flower arrangements, music to be played, whether you would like a clergy member like a priest or a rabbi present. Um, you know, it's, it's going through every single detail of the funeral. Prayer cards, if you want different colored linens for catering afterwards, what food do you want for that catering? It is a lot, and it's very, very overwhelming. And grief oftentimes gives people like memory issues, short-term memory. I've had full conversations with people, and then the next day they can't recall me at all. And you know, we just start from the beginning. You help people through that, uh, those kinds of things. It's not. There's not too much we can do, of course, from our point of view. But you know, we do remind families all the time. It, in very simple, small ways, it's, um, you know, asking if, like, when I make the first initial call to a person after they've, they've lost somebody, you know, it's when their loved one is in our care now, and I'm calling them to answer any questions, to set that arrangement appointment, I can usually tell right then and there if 
they're going to be strong enough to come to the meeting by themselves. Um, in that time, if people are absolutely a wreck, you know, I'll encourage time to themselves, or I'll say, you can always bring a support group with you to the meeting. Our rooms can seat five or six people, so bring family and friends to help you through this. Or even something as small as instead of saying goodbye, you know, have a good day, um, we always say take care, and we beg our families to please take care of themselves as much as they can during this time. When you approach this, uh, like if you were giving advice to people listening, um, even though it is something that we just as a culture don't like to think about death, let alone plan for our own death, what do you say to people that don't want to make any plans or have any contingencies set up and then just wait for something to happen and then they act? What do you say to that kind of approach? Um, well, I say the one thing guaranteed in life is death. You can try and avoid it and not think about it as much as you like, as much as your comfort will allow. But at some point, every single person in their life will have to confront death, whether it's a loved one or their own. And those conversations with your family and friends are insanely difficult. But it is much easier to have that conversation with your family, whether it's, hey, mom, do you want to be buried or cremated? <laughs> easier to have that now than something absolutely unfortunate happen and you're stuck thinking, what do I do? Yeah. Um, it's very important, even down to something as simple as finance, it, it is much cheaper to plan ahead for your funeral than it is to wait. Um, I have, I'm, I'm going to say something. There's one thing that a family that I met with months ago said to me, and it stuck with me. And it was this, this um, older man, and his mom had passed. And when I had asked him to bring certain documents into our meeting, social security card, IDs, marriage certificate, things like that, he said, yep, I've got it all here in the binder. And then he laughed, and he said, oh, I should reference the binder is something that mom had made years prior just putting together all of our information, their plans, their cemetery details. And he started to cry and he said, even in death, my mom is still taking care of me and making sure I'm all set up and prepared. Yeah, wow. So what happens, and I, I'm certainly curious about this just because I'm a curious person, but I would say this probably happens more than people planning down to every detail as far as what happens after death? What happens if they don't plan? What what are the things that go wrong? I mean, we can limit it to just Las Vegas or just Nevada, if you if you will. But what happens if if a person is in denial or whatever and they just don't make any plans? What happens to that in that kind of a situation? Then I mean, to put it simply, it all falls on the next of kin. Whoever is is left of your family or the executor of your will, if you have a will, um, they would be the ones to make all of those choices. Now, the problem with that comes to, one, sometimes people aren't financially prepared. So then, you know, the state social services will take over and handle the process. Um, or let's say the next of kin are your children. Uh, every single child has equal say. So if you have six kids and half of them say burial, we want dad buried, the other half say no dad wanted to be cremated now we're at a complete standstill 
we can't do anything until they either completely come to an agreement, all of them, or one of them gets a court order saying, no, proceed with burial. So I have had situations where then the family that's left over cannot make a decision and then we're stuck for weeks, if not months. Well, what happens in, in those situations where, you know, depending on the faith of the person who has passed, I know that I was raised Roman Catholic, but I know that in other faiths, there's a limit to how long you're supposed to go before uh, the final, whatever, in, in various, you know, how does that work? If someone has to be, you know, if there's a deadline of, I don't know, I'm making this up, 48 hours, and then you don't have consensus in the in the survivors. What happens then? Uh, well, I have been in that situation. Um, there are a couple religions off the top of my head, um, like Orthodox Jewish people or uh, people of the Muslim faith. A lot of times there's a 72-hour time frame of when you, they would like you to be buried. Now, that poses its own stressful process because, I mean, between you and me and everyone listening, the permit that lets us do what we need to do, bury or cremate, can take five to seven days. So it's already a crunch if there is, you know, a time frame. But in the, if family is undecisive and they're still working with the time frame, we just have to put it as simply as possible as if you want them buried within two days, you need to, to make up your mind. Yeah. Um, or if it's if you're not, if you're going to let your pride come in between what you know, you would like to be done with your loved one, then we're going to wait. Uh, those time frames, we try and follow them as closely as we can, but we have to follow the law first and foremost. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. This leads me to ask you, what do you do to cope yourself? You know, you're a, you're a living, breathing human being and you have emotions as we all do. How do you, how do you manage your own emotions when you work in an industry that is dealing with you know, you encounter people every day who are suffering and sad or grieving and that kind of thing. What do you do for your own emotional well-being? Well, I have a lot of friends that are also in the industry. So a lot of times we will just kind of vomit our emotions onto each other. Um, a lot of times it's just kind of recuperating. Um, we have this thing in the industry called compassion fatigue. And essentially that is just all day gives. And there's a, a phrase sometimes that I'll use and it's, uh, you know, you can't pour from an empty cup. And working in this industry, all you do is pour into other people. And it's really hard to refill your own cup. Um, but yeah, sometimes what helps me is having a really hard to heart moment with one of the families that I'm helping, um, whether they give me a huge hug and you know, they, they thank me for everything. That does so much more than people realize. Thanking your funeral professional, it, it, is, it is rare that it happens. And when it is, it is such a wonderful thing. Um, we have a, a therapy dog, actually, at, at my funeral home. Uh, his name is Snickers, and he's a very good boy. And he's there for the families that we serve and for our my colleagues. I will oftentimes spend my lunch break sitting on the ground playing with him. And it, it does kind of recharge me. Yeah, well, that's nice. <laughs> now, you mentioned knowing people, uh, having friends co who are colleagues in the profession here. 
in Las Vegas. What um, how do you get together just because like you go to a restaurant or you go to a movie or a concert or do you have um, get togethers for the profession specifically? We don't switch stakes because I think that would be really cool. Um, but I'd say the closest it would be like maybe a professional funeral conference that comes to town. Um, but yeah, it's, there's nothing formal for, for all of us. I mean, there's symposiums and, and expos and things, but I think a lot of the times we just, a lot of the funeral homes, despite being, you know, head to head companies and, and things like that, we all have a sense of we're on the same team. So when we do encounter each other, we have that moment of relation there and connection and friendship and then we just go on our ways. Yeah. Well, so I asked you about the emotional aspect. What about just day to day living? How do you, uh, like if you tell someone that what you, what you do for a living, is that, uh, how does that impact upon people's reaction (laughs) to you? Because when, you know, I think about, I, I would say, I don't see you dressed all in black or all in white when I've seen you out in the world. How, but does what you do for a living affect your living? Well, okay. Um, I love talking about my job and I love talking about what I do. Um, I have a couple shirts that I will wear when I want people to have that conversation and ask me, hey, do you work at a funeral home? And I will happily go on a rant about that. Um, even for instance, when we met, I, I openly said to the entire room that I work at a funeral home and it's very fun, but there are some times where compassion fatigue is weighing on me heavily that day, or maybe I just had a bad day, um, where I will tell people if they ask what I do, that I'm a teacher, (laughs) I will lie to their face. Um, but simply because there's usually one of, of three reactions. When I say I'm a licensed funeral arranger, I work at a funeral home, um, most people will, will say, oh, you know, thank you so much for what you do. Um, someone has to do it. That, that's a big one. Um, or you'll hear, oh, uh, that's really cool. Like, how'd you get into that? I want to do that. I love the show Six Feet Under. That's another one. Um, and then the third response, which is very common, is, oh, you know, I, I work at a funeral home. And then it's the person immediately, oh, you know, my great aunt died two months ago and it was a really horrible process. You know, she got hit by this bus and, and it's just snowballing into now I'm hearing all about your grief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes I'm not prepared for that. Sometimes I am and I'm here for it. Well, I'm yeah. It. But, but that, when I'm not, I'm not. Yeah. And then, and you're, you know, when you're at work, you're at work. And when you're not, you're not. And why, why would you need to have all that outside of work? I guess it's, well, it's yeah, it's just. Yeah. It would be too much. I don't know if I could handle, you know, taking and taking home, if you will, the emotions some, of, of the day. Sometimes it's, it's fine. Sometimes I encourage people to because, like you mentioned before, people don't like talking about death. So sometimes people will hold on to their grief and they'll bottle it up. And when they meet someone that's okay with talking about death, suddenly it's, I can finally get this off my chest. And then they just, they throw it up at me. And I'm here for it. I've done that to other people. But... There are times where I say I'm a teacher, and I'm not ready to talk about that. Right. And then if they ask what do you teach, you just say I teach mathematics. Yeah, <laughs> and, it's English. I am a professional English teacher. Is what I tell people. Now you mentioned television. 
a television show, Six Feet Under, which was one of my favorites. I guess it was, what, 15 years ago, maybe, or more. Yeah. What, what do you think about when you see the showbiz or Hollywood depictions in television or movies, when you see those depictions fictional about your industry? How, how, do, you, how do you respond to those? It's very easy to tell who's done the research and who hasn't. There are some shows like Six Feet Under that I'm very grateful for because that does take a lot of the scariness away from the funeral industry. Um, there are people that expect us to all dress like Grim Reapers or act like Wednesday Adams, and then they watch these shows and they realize, okay, they're just people just doing a job. It's not as scary as it seems, but there are some shows where I see it and I'm like, you've never stepped into a funeral home. You've never been around a dead body. What are you doing? Yeah. Um, one show that I think actually nailed it on the head um, was a show called The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix. One of the family members owns her own funeral home. So it's it's a little different because it's like her family owned one and funeral homes kind of vary by state. But um, just her process of talking with families and the arrangement process, it shows part of it. It shows a funeral that she holds herself. And I think they did it perfectly. Yeah, I'll have to watch that. And I'm very biased when I say this. Some of the funniest people I've ever met have been death professionals. Um, there's definitely a side to you need dark humor and you need humor to get through. To see what we see every single day, you have to be able to still laugh. And it is very, very dark humor. And of course, we're never laughing at the decedents itself. But I think a comedy with that, the juxtaposition of death and humor, it's so wrong, but it's so right. Yeah. It gives you some air to breathe, yeah. pun intended, um, <laughs> when it comes to the death subject, to be able to laugh about it. Well, and that that fills in some detail to what what I was thinking of in the sense of telling stories with a comedic point of view, like Six Feet Under always did. And if I recall correctly, they always had a rather gruesome death at the beginning of every episode. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And after a while, you began to sort of, well, that, you know, I've been watching for a month and I've seen four episodes. That means I've seen four deaths. And I think you be, you be, maybe you become more, uh, I don't know, you become more accepting that death is just a normal thing. The only people that think about death, of course, are the living. And there are some people that dedicate, if not waste, a lot of their life worrying about death. They're worrying about it so much before death even comes. And I mean, I'm dedicating my life to death. Yeah. So, but but, but you're yeah. you're you're not a storyteller. I mean, we're talking today, and you're revealing anecdotes. But you are in the business to help people to help your. Do you refer to them as uh, customers or clients? I mean, I know decedent. You use that word. What do you mm -hmm. call? What do you call the? You wouldn't use the word survivor, would you? No. No. Um. I refer to them as families. We'll say, yeah, we have a family coming in today or there's a family here. Um, with specific people, you know, we'll say their relationship to, to the decedent is, you know, the next of kin or maybe wife or mom or dad. Um, but it's, it's family. There are families. I got you. Okay. Yeah. This, Megan, has been delightful. I really, um, <laughs> I mean, as you know, in real life, because we do see each other out in the world, um, I really am in always engaged by what you have to say uh, and the things that you talk about. But today, I am especially glad that we have had this chance to record this and share it around the world. So I do want to thank you 
for that very much. Oh, well, thank you. I, I always enjoy talking to you. I do. Well, we, maybe we can have a show. Oh, we did. Wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Megan, you have, uh, what's the phrase you say? Take care. I will say, take care. Because um, you never would say something, this is ghoulish, but you would never say, see you around, you know, because that implies, oh. no, yeah. no. Or even worse, even worse would be, have a good day. Could you imagine? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Megan, thank you again, and uh, you take care, okay? Let me give the name of this place that you gave the classes at, Cemetery Pulp in Las Vegas. You've been listening to Fear Not the Reaper, an episode meant to demystify the taboos of talking about dying and death. Fear Not the Reaper was produced and directed by Madera D'Souza, also known as Woody. I'm your narrator, Sam Glass, from BlackBearVoice.com in Las Vegas.